Mark chapter 12. Now, if you remember, Jesus, he's in the temple. This is the day after he cleansed it again. It's Tuesday. This is Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' ministry, his life on earth. Sunday, he came in with the triumphal entry. Monday, he came in and cleansed that temple, turned it over, right? And here Tuesday, he returns to the temple with the disciples, and he's challenged by the religious leaders. He says, hey, by what authority do you do these things? Who puts you in charge here? Jesus. And what happens? He says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. The baptism of John, was it from God or from man? And they thought to themselves, they said, well, if we answer one way, that he's from God, then... Obviously, we're siding with him. If we answer from man, then the people are going to get ticked out of us because they thought he was a prophet. And they said, well, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you. <laughs> by what authority? But then he proceeded to tell a parable. He spoke to them by parables. Here we pick it up in chapter 12. And it says, A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Now, quickly, as we're going through here, I just want you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 5. That's left. Hey, not everybody's... I tell you, it took me a long time. It's taken me a long time today. All right, Isaiah chapter 5. says, starting in verse 1, just waiting just one more second here, all right, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as a well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it had yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So back to verse 2, you can see that when Jesus starts talking about a vineyard, these guys know they're going back into their mind to this verse, and they're going, right? And they go back, and then Jesus, verse 2, he says in in Mark uh, chapter 12, he says, Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers to move to another place, and at harvest time he sent servants to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to him. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He still sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, and others they killed. He only had one left to send. 
a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. In the parable of the vineyard, obviously Israel are the tenants. The, uh, Israel, um, sorry, Israel is the vineyard. The tenants are the, uh, are the husbandmen, are obviously the religious leaders of the day. The Lord seeking the fruit is God. The servants were the prophets that were sent throughout the years, and obviously the son is Jesus. When Jesus is telling this parable, he was revealing the condition of the hearts of the leaders and the people in Israel. Hey, I looked for fruit, but I found bad fruit. It's all bad. Through the years, he sent the prophets. He sent them one after another. And what happened to them? They're rejected. Some of them beaten. Some of them sawn in two. Killed. Destroyed. The Lord was looking for fruit among Israel. Instead, as Isaiah says, he found only bad fruit. He looked for justice and he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Sounds familiar today. Then he sent his own son. They're going to respect my son. But the the tenant said to another, hey man, we're going to take this for all ourselves. We're going to kill him and we're going to get it. Their hearts were evil and they were self-centered. It was all about them. They were power hungry. They were violent men. They didn't have the fruit that the Lord was desiring. And so verse 9, what then will the, Lord, the owner of the vineyard do? He's going to come and he's going to kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Boy, that, I believe that ticked him off. Isaiah elaborates on this you know, as we just read. Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do in my vineyard. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to destroy it. And then I'm going to give it to others. You know? And we're going to read here next week about the destruction of the temple. We're going to read about how in 70 AD, Titus came, the Roman general, he came in and he crushed Jerusalem and the nation of Israel was scattered until May 18th, 1948, when they became a nation again. As prophesied in the scripture. Just an amazing situation. God said he'd crush it. And that he would give the vineyard to others. Who's the others? Hello? Gentiles. And even if you look at it a different way, he gave the land of Israel to others. It's known as Palestine today. Named after Philistines, their worst enemy. Romans came in and said, we hate you so much, we're going to name your land after your worst enemy. You know? And then, because of the lack of fruit and that absence of submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they were so hard to the work of God in their life, they didn't recognize Jesus when he was right in front of them. They killed him. They killed their Messiah, the one they were waiting for. So they rejected Jesus. The stone was rejected in verse 10. Haven't you read the passage of Scripture? Jesus replies to them, and said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. I think this is Psalm 118 or 110, I can't remember. And Matthew's gospel adds, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people to produce its fruit. God's desiring that there would be fruit. Real quickly, the kingdom of God would be taken away from Israel and given to the Gentiles because they rejected the stone that became the cornerstone. Just a real quick, when you get into things like that, it gets kind of confusing, the stone and the cornerstone. There's a story about Solomon's temple when it was being built. Solomon's temple was built with, uh, around a uh, thousand years earlier than this time of Scripture. And King David's son Solomon built the temple. And as they were building it, they would cut these stones out of the quarry out of the north, north side of Jerusalem. And they would be cut with such precision that you could set them right next to each other and you wouldn't be able to put a knife blade in between them. They didn't need mortar or anything. I've been to Israel. I've gone down underground. You could see these massive stones. I mean, the size of the stage even. Yeah, it's amazing how they got, who knows. But you can't even put a stone in between them. It's just amazing architecture. And they would take these stones. Well, well, the story goes that one day, at the, at the building site, they got this stone. They're like, what the heck is this for? They couldn't see how it fit in to the natural progression. As they're building, they go, we don't know where to put this. Isn't, we're not understanding the blueprints, and so they just cast it aside. So they get towards the end of the building, and they're going, hey, where's the capstone? Where's, where's the top piece on this thing that, that finishes it all, that wraps it all up, that gives it identity? They call the quarry, you know, get them on the phone. Hey, what's, what's going on? Uh, well, we, we checked the records. Hey, we sent that to you way back then. Well, we don't have it. Well, we sent it. So someone finally remembers, oh, yeah, that stone we threw away. And they went and they got it. They realized, oh, this is the, the, the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. They didn't realize the significance of Jesus in front of them. They didn't realize that this rock, the stone, the one who had been struck in the wilderness, the one who had fallen upon this rock, the gospel shall be built, the church shall be built, the rock of Jesus Christ. They rejected him. They cast him aside, but they didn't realize that he was the pinnacle of everything. And so Jesus is saying this. Don't you realize this? And obviously, um, you know, you get into things like Daniel and the prophecy where he sees that um, that image of the uh, of the of a man made with gold and silver and then bronze and all these types of things. It says a stone hewn without hands comes and crushes it. That stone is Jesus, and Jesus continues. You know, Israel rejected him, but he's the chief cornerstone. And then Jesus says uh, in Matthew's uh, gospel, it says, "Whoever falls upon." this stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is a stumbling stone for the Jew and for the Gentile, for us. He trips us up. What are you going to do with him? And he says to each one of us, you have two options. You're either going to fall upon me and be broken, or I'm going to fall upon you and crush you one day. And we know Jesus, love, all this stuff. But we've, what we fail to, to recognize is that God is a just God. Oh no, 
God's just love only. Yeah, he's love, but he's also just. He also executes vengeance upon disobedience. He's also merciful and long-suffering. He's all these things at once. We can't wrap our human minds around who he is, but he can be all those things at once and be totally fair. That's our God. And when we look at Scripture and we just look at him through one lens, we fail to see who he is, that he can be all these things. You know, and like I was talking with a friend earlier today, you can go to Revelation and go, oh, that's not Jesus, you know? I'm sorry, yes, it is. That's Jesus. And so the choice for us today is you fall upon Jesus and become broken. God, forgive me. And, you fall, and, and when you give your life to Jesus, you die. You're dead. The old man is gone. All your hopes, all your dreams, everything you aspire to and you want are broken upon him. And he becomes your Lord and your master. Whatever you want, Lord Jesus. Wherever you want me to go. Walla Walla, Washington, you bet. Mexico, you got it, Lord. Talk to my neighbor next door. Wait, Lord, that's too much. Wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. So Jesus was talking to these guys. And he lays it out. Israel did not accept Jesus. They rejected him. And as a result, they were crushed. They were crushed. Today, God's looking for the fruit in the vineyard of his people. What does that fruit mean? If you're reading John chapter 15, I'll just read it for you. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, speaking to his disciples. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. For no branch can give, bear fruit of, by itself, but it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, Jesus is saying, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Is Jesus repeating something here? And in several different ways? Do you think it's important? Yeah, Matt, pay attention. Thick-headed Matt. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot produce fruit apart from Jesus Christ. I cannot produce anything worth value in his kingdom to glorify God, the things that God's seeking apart, apart from me abiding in Jesus Christ. If you do not remain in me, you are like branch, a branch that is thrown away and it withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown to the fire and burned. Read that for yourself. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Remember that cool promise? Speaking to disciples, remaining and abiding in Christ, asking that he will do it for us. Exciting, awesome. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. A disciple is one who bears fruit for Jesus Christ. Are we his disciples? And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands. How do you abide in Christ? You keep his commands. What are his commands? We get to it. I have told you so that my joy may be and your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. 
For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, brothers and sisters, that you might go and bear fruit that will last. And whatever you ask, again, he repeats this, whatever you ask in the name of the Father, in, the name, in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command that you love one another. He repeats it again. The fruit that God was seeking for in Israel's life and in our lives is love. Lord, help me. Not a physical love, not an eros. Not a, even a brotherly love, a phleo, that Philadelphia, that brotherly love. That's great and all. But he's seeking a love that can only come as we abide in the vine, that agape love. For God so agape the world, he gave his only son. That's, the, that's what he's looking for in us. I can't manufacture that, Lord. No, you cannot. You, we don't manufacture. We abide. And it flows. We're called to be free. You know? Are we bearing fruit of love? Or are we bearing the works of the flesh? I'm reading a lot of scripture today. That's why I wanted more time. Are we bearing the fruit of love in our lives? Matt Dotson? Or am I bearing the works of the flesh? Let's do a fruit check right now. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this is kind of a repeating theme, isn't it? If you bite and devour each other, watch out. You will be destroyed by each other. Knock it off. (laughs) So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify. You will not give in to the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. Anybody have that war going on inside there? Uh, me and what God wants. The old man versus the new man. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you, are, you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. He's talking about legalism and this is a different thing. But the acts of the flesh are obvious. Fruit check. What's your life like here? Ready? Sexual immorality. Impurity. Now, if you're asking, well, am I really sexually? If you're asking the question, it's there. All right? Let's be real. Impurity. Debauchery, which is drunkenness. Idolatry. Now, we aren't obviously going out and worshiping little idols. But as many have said, you know, who's the God in your life? Who's the God in your heart? Idolatry. Witchcraft. You know that word has its root? Uh, it's called, it's pharmakeia translated. Pharmakeia is where we get our word what? Pharmacy. There's a connection between 
drug use and the spirit realm. You know, shamans down in South America, they blow things up their nose for days, and then they can connect with the spirit world. I tell you what, when I was tripping out when I was younger, I started to hear voices, and now I know why. Those weren't the voices I wanted to hear. Witchcraft. Hatred. Discord. How's that unity in in here? Jealousy. Fits of rage, just freaking out. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions and factions. And envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He just says, and and all this type of stuff. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ah, Lord, help us fall upon the rock. Fall upon the rock. Fall upon the stone. Lord, help me. But the hope... Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, what is what God's looking for, right? Is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we marked by these things in our lives? Now, if the answer is no, then we're not doing what? Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We haven't reckoned ourselves dead. You have been crucified with Christ. When you said, "Jesus, Lord Jesus, save me, you died. And now Christ lives in you. And now we submit to the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We aren't submitting. When we don't submit to the Holy Spirit, these flesh things pop up all over the place. And they pop up every day, amen? You gotta be killed again. Down. You know? Back. Back in that grave. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, pro- uh, provoking and envying one, of the, one another. They were dealing with some things in their church, weren't they? We all deal with these things in our families, in our lives. Keep in step with the Spirit so that the fruit that God is looking for will be evident in our lives, the fruit of love. Abide in Christ. It's simple, not rocket science. Where's Jesus in your life? Are we keeping in step with the Spirit of God and producing the fruit of the Spirit uh, of the Spirit as we abide in Christ? When the Holy Spirit convicts us about these things, we either do one or th- one of two things: we either receive His correction or we reject it. You will either receive what the Lord is saying to you this morning, or you will reject it. And verse twelve: the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken a parable against him. But they were afraid of the crowds and so they left him and they went away. They were what? They rejected what Jesus was saying about them. And later they sent some of the Pharisees, right? Now, real quickly at the end of there, Jesus said, you are going to receive the greater condemnation to them. He said, you guys, because you're the leaders, and you rejected me, the very ones, and you're leading all these people to stay, you're going to receive the greater condemnation. There are, God is a just God. There are variances in judgment. Know that about him. These guys are going to get the big end of the stick. So, any even leadership, Lord Jesus, let me be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. 
Let me be a conduit of love and Lord, help me, you know? All of us, leading our families to fall upon the rock. Verse 13, we're gonna bust through this. Later, they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Pharisees and Herodians, those are political enemies. But when you have a greater enemy, your enemy becomes your friend, doesn't it? And so they joined forces. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay attention, to, you know, because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay imperial tax to Caesar or not? <laughs> they weren't sincere. Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? The question was, is it lawful for us as Jews to pay this stupid tax? Because we hate the Romans. Judah, uh, Judea, the, the region that they were in, that Jerusalem was in, was a Roman province. And as a Roman province, you got three taxes laid upon you. The first was a land tax, and that was uh, basically 10% of all the grain or crops you had right off the top. Secondly, it was 20%, well, altogether, the land tax involved uh, 10% grain, 20% of any fruit or wine you produced. So that's kind of a heavy tax, right? And then 1% to 5% uh, of an income tax was the second one. Anywhere in between there. The third is you'd pay each year a denarius to the government because you breathed in and out. Uh, it's just a day's wage. You know, Jews hated this taxation, and they did not recognize the Roman authority above them. They did not like it. They were occupied by these people. And by asking this clever question, by asking this clever question, what the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to get him in a no-win situation. Because if he said, yes, pay your taxes, then the Jews who hated him would go away. They'd go, I'm not following this guy. He's pro-Roman. But if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, they're going to go tattle on him. He's going to get arrested. Got a minute. What do you do? So Jesus says to him, you know, verse 15, why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him a coin and he asked, and he asked them, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Man, incredible. Look whose image, what's on this image? That's Caesar's. Go ahead. Give it back to him. But whose image are you made in? Whose stamp is on your life? Render to God what is God's. Extreme wisdom. Now, I'm not a fan of taxes coming from California. The Roman situation looks like a pretty good deal to me. Um, But nevertheless, we give to God what is God's and we render to government what is government's. Yes, we can fight for our taxes and all those things. But listen, Paul addresses this in Romans 13 real quickly, and he says, starting in verse 7, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So happy tax season to you all. Amen? Don't evade your taxes. The Lord wouldn't have it. Verse 18, Then the Sadducees, who said there's no resurrection, came and asked him a question. Sadducees were the priests of the day. They were the high priests of the time. And 
they were the ones who were more of a political sect in Judaism. They had gained control of the whole religious system. They were the priests at the time. They were really materialists, actually. They did not hold to the oral traditions like the Pharisees did, the ones who like got down to you can't turn on a light because you know it creates a fire in the spark that you know and there's that considered work. They didn't follow all that stuff. They just did, hey, the first five books of the Bible, that's all we follow. The laws of Moses, the Torah. They didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in angels, and they did not believe in the resurrection of of the dead. And that's why they're sad, you see. Um, Got you again. Yes, that's two times. Teachers, they said, Moses wrote for us, and they, they spoke to him out of the laws of Moses, right? Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves us with a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring of his brother. That's kind of freaky, but that's what happened. Now, there were seven brothers. They bring up this hypothetical situation. There were seven brothers, and basically the woman married the man. He died. Then the brother married her. Then he died, and it went all the way down through the seven. And then eventually she died, and then he goes, hey, in the resurrection, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, who's wife will she be? Oh, man, that brings a a knot in my head. These guys were questioning. Really quickly, the thing that they're talking about is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it involves a a law to where that if you were an Israelite and you married a a woman, and uh, say, I died, Christine was my wife. We didn't have any kids. That my brother, if I had a brother, would marry her, and the firstborn child that they would have would be in my last name. To con- would be named after me to con- so that my name would not be blotted out of Israel. It was a very important cultural thing. We see this in the story of uh, in Genesis chapter thirty-eight, where uh, Judah, one of the brothers of Joseph, all of a sudden the story takes this wild turn. But Judah goes ahead and. And he has three sons, and one of them marries a lady named Tamar. He dies, so he has to give him the other son. Then he dies because he didn't do some marital things he should have done. Uh, you know, trying to make it G. It's pretty R there. But, uh, and then the last kid was a little bit too young. He's like, I'm not giving it to her. She's going to die too. But eventually, Tamar, years down the road, pretends like she's a prostitute and gets with Judah, the father. And she becomes pregnant and has twins. And, you know, and he comes to her and says, hey, have her stoned. You know, she's been in harlotry. You know, and she goes, well, whoever's signet ring this is, that's who I'm pregnant by. And it was his. And he's like, oh, okay, well, never mind. You know, so. <laughs> that, but that child, that Perez, that was the line of Christ. That's why Genesis takes this crazy change, just one chapter. Of course, they don't know why, but the Holy Spirit does. And then you go on later down that lineage and there's a story of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz, Naomi. She had a husband, Elimelech. And they had two sons and the time got really hard and they had to move out of Jerusalem area and they moved over into Israel, I mean into Jordan area. And those two sons, they married those foreign women. One was Ruth, one was Orpah. Well, all the guys died in the family. And so it was just Ruth and uh, it was just Ruth and Naomi who went back to Jerusalem. And when they went back to Jerusalem, what happened? Ruth just so happened to come along the field belonging to Boaz. And as the widow would, she would collect the grain that fell after the workers worked. And that was the way she had, had, was able to get food, she begged. But Boaz delighted in her. 
kind of liked her. And Naomi eventually said, hey, go lay at his feet, which is a way of a woman's proposal. She was laying at his feet. I mean, you'd have to love the guy to lay at a guy's feet. He's been working in the field all day. <clears throat> so she proposes. And he says, listen, there's someone closer to me because Elimelech was his brother. Naomi's husband was his brother. He says, I've got a brother who's older. And so let me go to him. And so they went to him. He says, uh, you know, will you buy back his land? That was part of this relative's deal to buy back the land they sold when they went to the land. He said, I'll buy it back. He said, well, you also have to marry Ruth. And he's all, uh-uh, I'm not going to marry Ruth. I don't want to. And so the custom was, you met him in the city, you took off his sandal, and then the woman spat in his face. And so that's, you know, they, they got things. So that happened. And Boaz married Ruth. Well, they had a child. The story of the kinsman redeemer. They had a child, and guess whose the child's name was? Obed-Edom. And Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. The lineage of Jesus. Really, really interesting. All these kind of awkward situations. You go back, and there's harlots in Jesus' line. There's people in prostitution. There's murderers. There's people all the way along. He's familiar with our suffering. But this idea of the kinsman redeemer, the man who is closest to go, and they're asking this hypothetical situation saying, what if all this was played out in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, what would happen? And Jesus, Jesus comes right back at him. And what does he say? I don't know. I just went through that all in my head here. He just, Jesus replied, verse 24, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Ouch! When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, the one that they believed in? He says, haven't you read the book of Moses, the only ones that they accept? The account of the burning bush, how God said to them, I am, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. He's alive. They're alive. There will be a resurrection. And he did, they didn't know the scripture and they didn't know the power of God. May we know that. And so, um, I'm going to have to skip ahead here. As he taught, um, yeah, verse 38. No, sorry, verse 35. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, verse 28, please forgive me. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given him a good answer. And he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Well, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, O God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy got it. And when Jesus saw that, he had answered wisely, said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far because when, the, when God becomes the center of your life, you have the king. You have the kingdom. But when God is not the center of your life, when other things are works, you don't have the kingdom. 
As Christians, we have become crucified with Christ. We have become saved. We've been kids of the king. And so living as kids of the king, who's, gonna, who's the person who should be the center of our life? The Lord Jesus Christ. Is he Lord in our life? The question is for us. Are we in or are we close? Are you going to church and doing all these things, but at the, the center of your life is you and self? Or is the center of your life and my life Jesus Christ? Lord, help me. Because if it's not, we're deceived. He said to him, you're not far. I wonder if that person was Nicodemus personally. You know, Nick at night. Verse 35, when Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? And David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. And David calls him Lord. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? And the crowd listened with delight. The point of this is that Jesus was the son of David. He was a descendant of David. But what they did not recognize is that he preceded David. He was the son of God. They were looking for a a lineage of David, but they did not know that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Why did Yahweh say to my Lord, sit at my right hand? Jesus was before him. And so he was asking them, he's, he's correcting false teaching. He was, he was saying, hey, listen, you've got this all wrong. You're going to miss him. And as he taught, verse 38, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They were ambitious men. They looked for honor that man could give, not what God give, would give. They were proud men. They weren't humble. They wanted the best for themselves. And they were greedy. They took advantage of widows who were vulnerable. You know, their husbands had made the decisions for them all their lives, and here they are. And they went in and went ahead and eradicated their fortunes, you know? Stay away from these people. Jesus exposed these men for what they were and said they would be punished most severely. I, I really have problems with a lot of the TV stuff that's going on. And only if you give this and that, and oh, come on now, brother, you'll receive a blessing. And just to, and they sit, and, and the way they, we dress and all these things, it's like you will know a tree by its fruit. I'm not supposed to judge, but Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. Are they preaching Christ and him is cru- crucified, and are they living it? Are they humble people, you know, or are they greedy? The widow's offering, verse 41, for the end here. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. He watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury, and many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents, called mites. King James has it. Calling in his disciples, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put into more in the treasury than all these others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. 
Jesus' principle here shows us that a gift's value is determined by the spirit in which it's given. God doesn't want us to grudgingly give money or property or all these types of things to whoever we want. He wants our hearts. This widow's heart was broken before God. And he said, in his economy, she gave more than all these guys. That tells us something else, that God doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. The widow's gift also shows us that also shows us that the value of a gift is determined by what it costs the giver. They gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her lack. What does it cost you? King David said, I will not give an offering. I will not take something for free for the Lord. So I'm going to pay for it. He bought the, fl- the threshing floor. In our hearts, as we give our time, our resources, and all these things, yeah, to the church, but to the people and the situations surrounding us that God has placed in our path, man, Jesus is the king. He's the center. It's his resources. Lord, use me that I might be a blessing. And as we have that open hand, it's amazing. He keeps putting in more to give. And then he responds both little, and he gives you a little bit more to give, more to give, and somehow you're just blessed. It's not about holding. It's about losing. And I'm not, you know me, I, I don't preach on tithing and offering of that blah, you know? I figure the God, where the Lord guides, he'll provide, Amen. But as brothers and sisters, heart check. If you're just writing a check every week, you might want to hold off and say, hey, Lord, my heart, where is it? I want to make this for you, Lord Jesus. So check our hearts. That's what he's receiving. So let's pray.